Hey, keto freaks. Here's an update on KetoFest. KetoFest is a ketogenic festival for everyone. Richard Morris and I, along with a host of keto rock stars you probably know, are turning the entire coastal town of New London, Connecticut, ketogenic for a whole weekend next July. At least we hope it'll be next July. The actual date won't be confirmed until mid-January. You want talks by some of the hottest names in keto? Some of the best and brightest minds have already said they want to come, including Jimmy Moore, Megan Ramos, Ivor Cummins, Dr. Jeff Gerber, Dr. Eric Westman, and Dr. Ted Naiman. We hope to have a bacon bar going all day long during the talks. Knowledge and bacon. Ah. But we're going to do much more than sit in on these great talks. How about an outdoor pig roast? Cooking classes, fitness classes, walking tours, Segway tours, and of course, live music and hanging out with fellow Ketonians. Several restaurants and bars in the neighborhood have offered up a special keto menu that includes low-carb potables, chicken wings, and fathead pizza. Wouldn't a fathead pizza truck be the best ever? Yeah, I'm talking a portable brick oven all weekend long. Well, we're going to have a Kickstarter in March to sell tickets. Meantime, add your name to the mailing list at KetoFest.com. KetoFest, real keto for real people. Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin in Connecticut in the United States. And in February of 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet for over two years. Uh, when I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of studying a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've also lost about 80 pounds, and I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. Yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nah. We've, we've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. We hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Oh, yeah. We love to cook. And we love to eat. Mm. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> nope, it cannot. <laughs> so, Richard, let's start podcast number 43, Optimizing Nutrition. So, Richard, do we have any corrections or apologies from last week? What was last? Last week was Shane. I don't think we have any corrections or apologies. I'd like to thank everybody who has uh, donated to his uh, GoFundMe. Yeah. He has almost $2,000 already in the GoFundMe campaign wow. to help him build a room for Katie. And because, uh, of, of course, she has, potentially has brain cancer. Apparently, it's going to take up to a year before they can get her into an MRI 
just because of the way that with children you have to sedate them completely. They have to be under a general anaesthetic to be uh-huh. able to hold still for the duration. And and it, it's just very difficult to get uh, uh, places in the MRI in the hospital where they are in rural Victoria. Hmm. So they're going to have to go elsewhere in Australia. Uh-huh. We don't know when they're going to get the diagnosis, uh, but uh, hopefully um, soon. But thank you, everyone, for donating. That's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. And hopefully she can keep those tumors small with a ketogenic diet. Well, that's always a hope. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Well, uh, let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. We adhere to a few loose rules. Yeah. The first one is that we want to eat as few carbs as possible, as few refined carbohydrates. We don't like simple carbohydrates, starch, sugar, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, the only carbs that we get come from green leafy vegetables, maybe a few nuts, and whatever's in the the other low-carb foods that we eat. Sure. But we like to keep those under 20 grams a day, if we can. We also eat protein moderately, and the amount of protein that we eat scales with lean body mass, generally speaking. Yeah. And then we eat fat to satiety, and mm. uh, our, our, uh, our mantra here is if you're hungry, have a little fat first, yeah. and uh, if that takes the edge off, that's great. And if it doesn't, then eat. Yeah. We really want to get our energy from fat. That's the goal. Uh, that, and that's the whole point of the ketogenic diet. We, fat is a safer place to get your energy from. So uh, that's what we do. So, Richard, how was your week? I had an awesome week, Carl. I, uh, I got my lab results. Yeah. My quarterly lab results. Yeah. And as you know, I've been trying an experiment this past uh, four months. I went off metformin. Right. Yeah, so in 2011, I started metformin to maintain my blood glucose, and it didn't do a great job. Uh, my blood glucose got uh, progressively worse and worse, mm. and it was only the ketogenic diet that I started in 2014 that really managed to put a lid on it. And my HbA1c, which is a marker of uh, three months average glucose uh, concentration in your, in your blood, was at 7.5 when I started the ketogenic diet. And uh, within six months, it was 5.2, and it's been 5.2 ever since. Wow. So I get a quarterly blood test for a year, and I decided last quarter, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go off all medication, and let's see if I can maintain my blood glucose. Mm. Because if I can maintain my blood glucose without any medication at all, then I'm non-diabetic. Officially and in in all regards, I'm non-diabetic. Right. Now, of course, if I go back to a high-carb diet, things will start to derange again. And that was the case when I was a a newborn. If I was to eat a high-carb diet 40 years later on, that baby will be a type 2 diabetic. Well, in this case, I guess I probably have it. If I was to eat a high-carb diet, I think it would probably take me about a year or two and I would be back into diabetic ranges of blood glucose. But as far as I'm concerned, at 5.2, if I can manage my blood glucose below the pre-diabetic range, which is uh, 5.7, if I can do that then uh, without any medication, then as far as I'm concerned, I'm no longer diabetic. Right. I have three results here, six months ago, three months ago, and now. Six months ago, it was 5.2%. Yep. Three months ago, it was 5.2%, and I went off metformin, and now I have no oral diabetic medication, okay. uh, glucose control medication. So what do you think my HbA1c was? I I'm, I'm at the edge of my seat. Yeah. And so last week, I said it was going to be a tight thing. I, you know, Maybe it was 57 because I'd been doing spot checks, and it was higher than I normally am, and yeah. my, my dawn effect f- figures were higher than normal, and so I was worried that I was it was going to be a close thing. Mm. 
My HbA1c is 5.2%. <laughs> Didn't change at all. So the wow. metformin really wasn't having an effect on my glucose control. Wow. So the other thing I got was a fasting insulin test. And I have three measurements for that. And the first time I ever got one was six months ago, and it was 19.8. Right. Uh, that's in um, uh, milli units per litre. And that's really quite high. That's almost too much or too high to, to – uh, easily enable the pollicis. So what I did, my intervention for that period was to try fasting. Mm. And so I, I added in a three-day fast for uh, once a month mm-hmm. and uh, my fasting insulin after that, so the three months ago, was 13.7. So it went from 19.8 to 13.7. Wow, great. Interestingly enough, because uh, insulin is a little bit noisy, it, it flies around all over the place yeah. and- as does glucose, and they're, they're, they're linked. But if you take the two the two values of fasting glucose and fasting insulin, multiply them and divide by 22.5, then you get a, a value called HOMA-IR, which is a rough indication of how insulin resistant you were. Now, hmm. when I got this, first got this test six months ago, my HOMA-IR was 4.8. When I got the test three months ago, my HOMA-IR was 2.8. So I'd significantly decreased my insulin resistance by fasting. That's because your insulin your your insulin may have been high but your glucose was low, so your insulin is actually having an effect on reducing yeah. your glucose. Yeah, I'm needing less insulin to be able to control my glucose. Yeah. So the interesting thing though with the results today or my my recent results is as you know, I went off metformin for for 3 months mm-hmm. and my Fasting insulin has jumped back up to 20.3. Now, that by itself wouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, ideally, you want to be under four, Mm. ideally, if you really are insulin sensitive. And that's my goal is to be as insulin sensitive as I was as a teenager. Right, right. But if I do the HOMA IR calculation, it's gone back up to 4.8. So I went 4.8, 2.8, 4.8. So my insulin resistance by going off metformin got worse, even though my glucose control was unaffected. Interesting. So, mm. and, and one of the one of the effects of of of, uh, of metformin is to help sensitize you to insulin. So, uh, so I'm going to go back on it. Oh, okay. I was going to say you might want to stay off it for a while and see if your body naturally corrects itself. Stabilizes. I'm kind of. I think I want to go back on it because I want to get as low glucose as I can. Mm. And this is something that Tim Noakes does. He doesn't need to be on metformin either. He, his, his diet managed his, uh, his diabetes as well. Mm. But he goes, he ha- takes metformin because he really wants low, low, low glucose. Got as it. low as he can possibly get it. So, and I'm going to follow the same pattern. Um, another interesting thing that did happen as well was I got my lipids and I also got uh, a general uh, panel, which includes uh, things like sodium and other minerals. Okay. The interesting thing is my blood pressure for the past three months since I went off metformin has been inching up just a little bit. Yeah. And when I looked at uh, my sodium results, they were the top of the physiological range. So they weren't high. They weren't the doc- – a doctor would look at it and say, oh, it's not marked with an H beside it, so it's – you're fine, but I'm right at the top of that range, and I wasn't without metformin. Mm. So I suspect what's happening is, because without metformin, my insulin is naturally going higher. My basal insulin is higher, and that affects my insulin uh, to, uh, in response to challenges. Mm. And so what I suspect is happening is 
that I am reabsorbing more sodium in my kidneys. So I'm carrying more sodium in my blood, which draws water in, which increases blood pressure. So it's a complicated it. thing, but it's interesting because now I've got a marker. I, if I can, if I can bend this the needle on sodium, then that uh, could potentially um, affect blood pressure and yeah. um, stroke risk and all these other things. That's great, Richard. The final thing that's interesting, and I'm sorry about this, but this is really fascinating. Cool. I got a lipid panel, and every six months I get a lipid subfraction analysis. Yeah. So um, we're going to talk today about macadamias. That's right. It actually it actually turns out that I decided to try Dave Feldman's test to uh, see if I could bend the needle on my lipids. Right. And so I I had a seven hundred gram bag of macadamias, <laughs> and for the three days prior. I had a third of the bag each day. So I had like almost two cups of macadamias each day on top of all of the other food that I had. Oh, wow. So A lot of fat. I ate to satiety and then ate macadamias. So I was uh, I was probably around about 5,000 kilocalories right. per day, which is pretty much what Dave did to bend his results. LDL, yeah. yeah so uh, the interesting thing is that my triglycerides six months ago were – 1.45, and three months ago were 1.14, and now, post-macadamia, 0.91. Wow. Massive drop. Wow. <laughs> Massive drop. And my HDL went from 1.0 to 1.2, so my HDL went up, my triglycerides went down. Huh. I don't give a damn about my cholesterol and my LDL, uh, my total cholesterol and my LDL. They mm-hmm. both went, they got slightly better, but I don't care about those. Yeah. The... Mm. But the <laughs> subfraction, I oh, know, this is fascinating. Marty's grinning from ear to ear. This is great. You guys are so, so geeking out here. We are. So six months ago when I had lipid subfraction analysis, my small dense LDL was 0.39 millimoles per liter, mm. which is, it puts me into an intermediate profile based on average particle size, and it states the analysis is these patients probably show a small increased risk of adverse cardiac events. So 0.39 was what it was six months ago. Okay. What it is now is 0.06. Wow. Almost undetectable. Almost none. And uh, there's only one peak. I had three peaks in my LDL previously, six months ago. I only have one peak, and it's sitting right over LDL1. So there's actually – it's like like two-thirds of the the area under the curve is in LDL1. Wow. So it's a a massive increase. And um, as I say, my doctor is is going to freak out when she sees this. (laughs) I I see her on Thursday. (laughs) And uh, the the analysis is that – my um, my lipid profile is type A based on mean LDL particle size. Type A carries no additional risk of an adverse cardiac event. That's all to be expected, you know, when you have a calcium score of zero. And we we knew that was going to happen, right? <laughs> so, how was your week, Carl? Well, I also had a great week, Richard. Cool, uh, and it involves macadamias as well. <laughs> <laughs> I was remembering when we interviewed Jason Fung. That uh, in his sample diet plans, he had things that you wouldn't think would show up on a ketogenic dieters list, like all brand cereal, for mm. example. Wow. And he said, you know, some foods will uh, have more carbohydrate in them, and yet 
still not have an effect on insulin levels or mm. a, a negative effect. In other words, raise your insulin. Right. And he goes by this index, not a glycemic index, not a glycemic load index, but a insulin index, a food insulin index, FII. Mm. And so I just got that bug in my head and I thought, you know, let's, let's see what, let's see what this is more about. So I went looking for a list. And by the way, there's a lot of noise out there when it, it comes sure to insulin indexes mm. and a lot of clickbait and a lot of stuff that turns out to be just a few foods and, and what we really want is a comprehensive list. Yeah. So I did ultimately find one and I saw that macadamias were really low on the list. And in terms of percentage uh, insulogenic, Right. That's what the, the list says. How, what percentage insulogenic is this food? And it turns out macadamias are very, very low, hmm. 5%. Right. And then I correlated that with their glycemic index, which right. on all accounts is zero. Hmm. I mean, they, they have practically no effect on blood sugar. So I thought I'd do a little test. Hmm. And uh, uh, I know that macadamias are dense with calories, and so with the whole recent calories in, calories out, and y your post about your dog and yeah. all of that, Please. I just said, you know, there's so much to know here that I feel so ignorant. So I wanted to do a little test. Mm. So after about four hours of being awake, so I didn't have any dawn effect, I took a baseline blood glucose and ketone reading, a nice. blood ketone reading. My glucose was 99. My ketones were 0 0.3. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Not bad. Mm -hmm. So then I ate 11 macadamia nuts, which is about 12 grams, about 80 calories. And after 30 minutes, my glucose hadn't changed pretty much. It was 100. And my ketones were 0.4. Nice. So that confirms the, the, the yeah. GI and the FII data. Mm. Now I wanted to see how I felt after eating them because you remember I gave them up. Yeah. And right. I thought they were preventing weight loss. Mm. What they were really doing was making me hungry. Mm. And I think this is an interesting dichotomy mm. that how can something that doesn't raise your insulin, doesn't raise your glucose and in increases my ketones yeah. make me hungry? It could how be is a, that possible? It could be a hedonic effect. Like your body has said, yeah, we like that. That's got plenty of yeah. energy, you know, get some, get some more of that. I hearken it back to the days when I used to do this with potato chips, which is, you know, yeah. you have a bunch of yeah. snacks, salty, yeah. crunchy snacks in a bowl that are fattening. Yeah. Yeah. And, you, you know, potato chips don't have a lot of nutrition in them. So your body wants you to eat more and more and more. Mm. Perhaps it's because the nutrition in the macadamia nuts takes a while to get through your system. And then so you're... You, all you have to go on signal wise is the crunch and the salt and it tastes good. And your body mm. thinks, ah, potato chips, probably not a lot of nutrition. <laughs> yeah. I, so I don't know. I yeah. don't know what the, the answer is. So I, I posted that and um, had a lot of people saying they had very similar results. By the way, macadamias have more calories per gram than butter. Yeah. <laughs> A hundred grams of butter has about 716 calories and a hundred grams of macadamias has 769. So just a little wow. bit more. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't actually sit down and eat butter like you eat macadamias, would you? No. You, because, because you're satisfied, you know? So I, I just think that's really interesting that despite the science, despite the numbers, these things make me hungry. They make me want to eat more of them. And uh, I just thought that was fascinating. So that started me thinking about this whole index thing, Glu glycemic index, 
uh, glycemic load. Food insulin index. Yep. Insulin index. What does it all mean? I, I threw that out to you and you said, yeah, that sounds like a great show. And we uh, put that out on our Facebook group and it resulted in what we're going to talk about today because Marty Kendall chimed in with a whole bunch of great, uh, great information. So I think we should, before we get to that, we should just uh, read some, uh, what is it we're going to read? Mail! Okay, I've got an awesome one. <laughs> All right. This came from Barb in our Facebook group. And if you want to join us on Facebook, there are almost 10,000 of us there. Mm. And there is a party. <laughs> yeah, it is. And so uh, you can get to our Facebook group at fb.2keto.com. Right. So... Barb posted an awesome picture of herself holding a bottle of alcohol. She looks 12. She, <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting because she said her, her comment was, I just got carded at the liquor store. Legal age is 19 here in Ontario, Canada. I'm 37. <laughs> Keep calm and keto on. And seriously, she looks like she's a teenager. She's, she's had a keto facelift. <laughs> she had a keto facelift and she's holding a bottle of wine. And that started an awesome thread and you really should join us on Facebook and, uh, and check out some of the comments on that thread. All right. Should we get right to the comments that uh, people left on my post? Yeah. I basically said Richard and I are going to record a show tomorrow on food indexes, comments, resources, questions. And uh, that brought out Marty. And I think it was... Uh, Duvernay Jason, or is it Jason Duvernay? Said Marty Kendall tagged him. He tagged him. <laughs> I couldn't resist. So welcome, Marty. Hey, thanks, guys. It's been fun. Great to be a part of your show. I've been loving it. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, the, re the reason that um, we got you on here is because you posted all these great resources from your blog, Optimizing Nutrition. That's why we called the show Optimizing Nutrition. Mm. So first of all, just... Uh, just let's let's get right into it. What happened here with the macadamia experiment in your eyes? Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. macadamia is definitely low glycemic response and um, and low insulin response and low blood sugar response, as you found. But uh, may, maybe to an extent, that hey, some things are still just really yummy. I've got a, you know, I love <laughs> peanut butter and butter, but I know you know, hey, you just can't keep eating these things all the time, although they're really yummy. So yeah. maybe, maybe it is just. Partly the hedonic that's, uh, yeah, yeah it could be strung down more of it. So it's very complex appetite and satiety. And yeah, it's a fascinating rabbit hole. It, it really is. And, and, and on your blog post, you, you sort of have this, uh, a whole bunch of approaches to, um, nutrition that are different for different metabolisms and different stages yeah. along the craft. Uh, Dr. Kraft's uh, insulin resistance spectrum. Oh, my, my, my wife is a type 1 diabetic, so I suppose that's how I got into it, seeing her going up and down and round and round as she eats different foods and has to jam down insulin and as blood sugars are crashing and she feels bad and then has to eat her way out of that. So I thought, hey, how do we stabilize this? How do we get it normalized, smooth out that blood sugar roller coaster? Then I came across Jason Fung talking about the food insulin index. And uh, yeah. I went digging like you did and uh, found some fascinating data that, you know, two years ago and uh, just kept blogging about that ever since. And it's been, it's been a really great journey. So is that Jenny Brand Miller's um, insulin paper? 
Yeah, correct, correct. This is before she she became Sugar's greatest uh, hero. <laughs> well, the, the, the University of Sydney's done a lot of fascinating stuff, including the satiety index and the glycemic index and the food insulin index. And and I found the food insulin index and, and then plotted it. And um, I, I don't think I need to be quite plotted it that way. And what it really said is that the way to minimize insulin is to eat more fat and i think well, maybe they didn't bring this out because that doesn't <laughs> it's not congruent with the message they're trying to get out no. there. But that's the obvious thing if if you don't want your blood sugars going up and down and you're having to jam in heaps of insulin then uh more fat is better and, and moderate protein and it, it aligns completely with the low-carb ketogenic diet approach and it it enabled me to say hey this is a way to prioritize foods for people who don't deal with insulin well Right. So it's uh, I thought it was a holy grail. I thought, hey, this is really interesting, and uh, right. started sharing it, and yeah, it's, it's gone off. So it's been fun. So there's a couple of core concepts that you talk about, and yeah. one of them, uh, Ted Naiman hinted at uh, on our show with him, which is nutrient density, mm. and. And the more I, I, I didn't, I mean, I kind of understood. Obviously, you know, you want to eat foods that are that are dense in nutrition. I, I, I don't think anybody would disagree with that because obviously, mm. uh, but I didn't get it until you said it, it's the manufacturing of food that has separated nutrition from energy mm. and it Definitely. may have energy in the form of glucose, but it doesn't have nutrition and your body craves the nutrition and it will keep eating until it gets the nutrients that it needs. You probably heard the Dorito effects where they say, you know, the manufactured taste. So your body goes, hey, I want nutrients. I want food that tastes good because in nature, nutrition and uh, taste come together. But food scientists have been able to separate those two things. So you've got really poor nutrition and really great taste. So your body is just hammering down this amazing tasting food that's giving you actually no nutrients. And then you go, oh, I've got no nutrients, so I need to keep eating more. So all of a sudden, you just, you know, it's spiraling Aren't out of control, and, and you've got a obesity epidemic on your hands. I mean, it's a great way to frame the problem. Whereas, mm. you know, we've been talking about um, glucose spiking, uh, creating carb cravings, which it does. And but you know, think about what glucose is. It's pure energy without nutrition, right? Mm. Mm. Well, you still need energy. You do. Yeah, definitely. Whether it be carbs or fat or wherever. But um, what I found is I looked more at the food insulin index and you go, hey, the, the, the foods that are most attractive are really the, the, low, the high fat ones with low protein and low carbohydrate. You think, well, right. if I just eat butter or just eat macadamia nuts, I'm going to miss, be missing out on some vitamins, aminos, uh, you know, essential fatty acids perhaps that I need right. as well. So I thought, yeah. hey, maybe there's a way of combining the food insulin index with nutrient density at the same time, a bit of a nerdy multi-criterion analysis engineering way that uh, <laughs> you guys as programmers get. But, That's uh, right, yeah. You know, Seems like the engineers are responsible for doing more of this work <laughs> than the doctors are. Yeah, yeah but... but engineers are doing it for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly right because, you know, for me, I, I, I've got a history of obesity and type 2 diabetes and I just don't want to be that and yeah. I see my wife and I, I don't want her to suffer that. You know, you, you, no. Gary Fetke's cutting off limbs of diabetics because they can't control their blood sugars. I don't want my wife to be that. And um, yeah. you, you take matters into your own hands and say, how can we do this? But, um, yeah, I mean, by day I, I use multi 
criteria analysis is to say which road to invest in first or which bypass to invest in. So you can use a, sure. a, a number of different criteria that all contribute to an answer. So it, it's not just one index. It's not just the glycemic index, right. the glycemic load or food insulin index or, or carbs. You can bring, I think, nutrient density and food insulin index are really powerful to get something that's uh, low carb but also nutritionally whole as well. So, right. yeah, it's really exciting, really powerful, the results that have come out of it. One of the coolest things that I saw on your blog was you talked about um, all of these things together and then at the end of it, mm. linked to PDFs that have food recommendations based on what metabolism state you're in. In other words, mm. if you are a uh, insulin-resistant person and obese and you want to lose weight, mm. here's a list for you. If you're an insulin sensitive person and obese, mm. here's a list for you. If you're an insulin sensitive person and you're not obese and you need nutrition and you need to balance your body, here's a, here's a list for you. And yeah. and go, going to the uh, insulin resistant list, which I did because that's what I am, um, all of the foods that you have in there are exactly what you'd expect. Um, yeah, you know, they, they all fall in line with what people say to eat on a ketogenic diet. Although at the top of your list, uh, for meats is the offals, like the liver. And the, <laughs> yeah. you know. Not everybody enjoys the offal. Bacon is up there though. Bacon is up there. But that correlates with what Nina said mm, on, on her show where she said some of the most nutritious food is, can be found in liver, in liver you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that's just the numbers. So yeah. Right. Yeah. I, personally, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of offal. That's why I eat vegetables. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <I don't laughs> <eat> <laughs> That's pretty much how it is in our house. Yeah. yeah. Well, I found that uh, liverwurst is a great way to get mm. your liver and still be palatable. Like, I don't like beef mm. liver either. I don't like chicken liver. You know, I could, I could stand chopped liver. You know, the, your basic deli chopped liver, which is almost like a liver salad. You know, yeah. but I, but, but, uh, liverwurst. Yeah. I could spread that on a cheese crisp and be very happy with that and not have to eat a lot too. And that, and that, mm. that follows your logic, Marty. Whereas, you know, if mm. you, if you eat something that's nutrient dense and ketogenic mm. versus mm. just, you know, um, a glass of heavy cream or something like that, that you're, you're probably going to be, uh, satiated sooner. And I found that to be the case. Your body looks for the nutrients and, and will potentially stop sooner once it gets the nutrients it needs to power the body. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, I think the closest I get to offal is uh, bone marrow and uh, bone broths. So, I mean, it's not really offal, but and also skin. I, I, I end up eating quite a lot of skin. That turns out to be uh, high in glycine and, you know, yeah. there are some yeah. benefits to having that in your diet. But Chicken uh, wings. Uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Yeah. But, but like you say, if you don't like offal, there's plenty of veggies. Like, uh, that right. list of the therapeutic keto ketosis list, you've got olives, avocado, um, you know, endive, broccoli, all those sort of things that you know that are nutrient dense but aren't going to boost your blood sugars and right. insulin too much. Yeah, the oily fish. You could actually do an app there with uh, you know, individual variability, and you could say, "Do you eat awful? No. Uh, are you insulin resistant? <laughs> yes. Are you are you obese? No." And go through the list of things and and come yeah, up with yeah, like yeah. a customized list. It's a very good idea that I might be working Let's on. Let's do that, Marty. <laughs> okay, yeah. we'll talk after the show. Yeah, no worries. That'd be cool. <laughs> 
All right, let's talk about the indexes, starting with the glycemic index. And uh, what, what is that and how can we interpret it in the context of this, what we're talking about? Yeah, so the glycemic index, a lot of people have heard of it. Basically, it's a comparison of how much a particular food raises your blood sugar in comparison to glucose. So they rank glucose at 100%. It'll boost your blood sugar off, off, off the chart, basically, and mm. anything back from that. Is uh, is lower, so uh, a, a GI of greater than seventy is considered high. Between fifty-five and seventy is medium, and things like beans, lentil, oats, but they're still carbohydrates, have mm. a lower GI that are fifty-five. So, I mean, the, the dietary association. So you need carbs. So you know the glycemic index is the, their best way of saying here's some carbs that won't instantly boost your blood sugar, but really. If you're diabetic, if you're injecting insulin, they still need a fair bit of insulin to deal with, even if it's over a longer period of time. So you may see, you may not see your blood sugar go through the roof, but really your pancreas is still working on that food for a very long time. And I think potentially from a obesogenic, um, you know, someone who's injecting insulin, it's, it, it doesn't matter that much um, because you still have to secrete a whole lot of insulin to deal with that. Right. So was this the one that was uh, created by giving universities – they had university students come in yeah. and they picked three out of the crowd and they averaged the glucose for the three. Uh, and it was a different set of three for each food. Yeah, so it's an in vivo test, which means that it's done in real people, as is the, the food right. insulin index. And uh, yeah, but then you've got glycemic load, which is potentially a bit more useful because like yeah. a, a watermelon – you know, it has a lot of water in it, so it might have might be nearly 100% carbs, but you're going to have to need a lot of watermelon to boost your blood sugar mm -hmm. a lot. But a, a loaf of bread, it's going to boost your blood sugar a whole lot more quickly because it's so much more dense. So the glycemic load is potentially more useful. Um, it nearly comes back to carb counting in the end. But, um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, uh, so they do use the glycemic load again out of the University of Sydney um, yeah, in Australia. Good things come out of Australia, don't they, Richard? Yeah, they, they certainly do. Like macadamias. <laughs> For some reason, everybody seems to think macadamias come from Hawaii. <laughs> right. Well, it's because of the brand, Mauna Loa or whatever it was, right? Right. But they're bush tucker. They're Aboriginal, yeah. they're Aboriginal bush tucker food. Somewhere I saw this. It might have been actually Ted Naiman's uh, YouTube video where he was talking about glycemic index, that a slice of whole wheat bread has a higher glycemic index than I think it was pure table sugar. Yeah, I think he was saying that they have to add sugar to the cereals to bring the glucose, the, the glycemic index down, <laughs> uh, which is nuts. It's true, but it's nuts. But uh, yeah, because table table sugar is fructose and glucose, which has a lower right. glycemic index. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's 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 absolutely crazy, isn't it? And and you never think of things like starches as being sugary, but and mm. potatoes are off the chart. I mean, potatoes are probably yeah. the highest glycemic vegetable, certainly, that you can eat. Yeah. They might be okay if you're uh, really insulin sensitive and really fit, but for people like my wife and you guys who are dealing with uh, massive insulin resistance, they're just bad news. And yeah, like going to carb cravings and blood sugar swings, insulin's roller coaster. Unless, of course, that's all you eat. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently, you can eat only potatoes, and there are people who've done it. And you know, 
it, uh, if you don't have any fat with it, apparently. Yeah, who would have thought raw potato by itself has a high satiety value? But, uh... Right, and not only that, but you can't produce insulin unless you have dietary fat, apparently, a small amount of dietary fat. So yeah, apparently bizarre. it blocks the pancreas and, and you, you, your, your fat stores, your, uh, uh, your body fat um, uh, releases, your body fat cells release, and that drives the... Uh, the energy uh, signaling in the in the blood, but it's sorry. Uh, I'd rather have a ribeye smothered in butter. <laughs> yeah, me too. Absolutely, it's much easier. Okay, now let's talk about the glucose ketone index. And is, is yeah. this some, this is something I've only seen you talking about? Is is this something you came up with? No, this is something developed by Dr. Siegfried, who's a cancer researcher. So. In a cancer situation, what they want is a very low insulin situation. So they, they'll, they'll feed people a therapeutic ketogenic diet to bring the insulin levels down and potentially fast them for longer periods of time. And Seafried found that if they've got a low glucose level and a high ketone level, um, they've got a much better chance of, of battling cancer. And as you know, when you put people through a PET scan, the way they do that is they feed feed them radioactive glucose and uh, the, the, the cancer lights up and, you know, obviously the... Cancer just noms the, it up. <laughs> the, the, the sugar's feeding off the... The cancer's feeding off the sugar. So, uh, yeah, yeah. so the, the, the glucose ketone index is a way to make sure... It, it, it's a way to measure your current metabolic um, state and metabolic health and, and as you fast for longer, uh, your ketones will go up, your glucose will come down. So uh, a high... Uh, a low glucose ketone index means you've got high ketones and low glucose, which is a healthy state to be in. As you fast, your ketones will increase and your blood sugar will keep going down. So that's an interesting test and uh, yeah, another index that we can use. I know that I naturally don't produce a lot of ketones. My mm. natural range is between 0.4 and 0.8. Um, unless I fast. If I fast, I can get it up to two and a half, three. Yeah, definitely. And Tim Noakes is the same. He has the same range uh, on his diet. So um, yeah. I was talking to Dr. Finney um, when he was out in Australia recently, and he said mm. that they, they're seeing now athletes who have no, – normally it is said you're in nutritional ketosis if your ketones are between are above 0.5. And mm. if your ketones are below 0.5, then you're not in nutritional ketosis. And I was always concerned, well, mine's, mine goes down to 0.4 and maybe I'm slipping out of ketosis. Mm. Uh, he actually said that some of his uh, professional athletes in Jeff Volek's lab uh, are in nutritional ketosis uh, when their ketone levels are down to around 0.3. So, you mm. know, it, it could yeah, be situational. Some people... Uh, you know, it it, uh, it there's an indication of you know the, their ketones are going to be reflecting their their athletic conditioning. Yeah, definitely. I had the same chat with Finney, and he stayed at our place, and it was great to have 24 hours cornering mm. him. But um, yeah, he told I me stayed in the same about... hotel as him, so, <laughs> so I, I got to have breakfast with him. <laughs> uh, I made him breakfast anyway. Fanboys, fanboys, you win. But anyway, um, we had a chat about how they developed that uh, optimal ketone curve, and then they said the mm. optimal ketosis is is higher. And talked about fat adapted athletes and uh, people losing mm. weight, but potentially that's early adaption. And it seems a lot of people I see more and more, and as you said, really healthy athletes end up with a, a lower level of ketones. So maybe 0.2, 0.3, right. 0.4. You've got right. some level of ketones, but um, 
to be going chasing higher and higher level of ketones with more and more and more dietary fat may not be an optimal approach. Especially if your markers are good, right? I mean, check it out. Yeah, uh, yeah, just yeah. on last week's show with Jimmy Moore and the doc, they, they had an email from a from a guy who was like, look, my blood sugar is like 80. Yeah. Um, you know, I have more energy than I've ever had. Uh, you know, all of the great markers of, uh, of health mm. are there. And yet my ketones are barely registering what's going on. And the, the answer mm. was, what are you complaining about? I mean, it, <laughs> keep doing what you're doing, dude. <laughs> your body has figured out how to optimally use the ketones that are being created mm. and not to spill yeah. so many. When you're first going to ketosis, you have a lot of ketones because your cells don't quite know what to do with them yet. Mm. You're, mm. Just because you're mm. generating Definitely. them doesn't mean your body knows what to do with them. And then as you get more and more adapted and more and more efficient, then, uh, then your, your level is low. It's your leftover, isn't it? It's the remainder. Yeah. yeah, it's the ketone flux there. So having lower glucose levels, I think, is really what you need to focus right. on. If you've got Agreed. some ketones, you're in a good position. You're obviously producing some. Yeah. You're using your own body fat fuel. You can access it. You've got low insulin levels. Tick. You're in a good place. That makes sense. All right, talk about the satiety index. Yeah, so this is another one out of uh, University of New South Wales where they fed a bunch of people a certain amount of food and then measured like at a buffet a couple of hours later how much they'd eat. And and what they found, like potatoes did do really well, and those, thing, those things that fill you up, um, they're bulky, high-protein type foods, but at the same time it's not going to work for someone who's insulin-resistant, who a, a, a potato's going to send them on a, on a glucose roller coaster and, and craving carbs a couple of hours later. So, um, yeah, and, and that's where in the system I think for somebody who's at a point where they're, they're really insulin sensitive, they're fit, um, their blood sugars are fantastic. This can come into play where maybe they do need to back off a little bit of fat. They're not, they're yeah. not lumping heaps and heaps of dietary fat in so they can let the fat come from their body. Um, but if you're actually insulin resistant and have high blood sugars and no ketones, then it, it, it's, it's not a factor for you. And as, as you said before, Carl, there's different approaches. Right. And using those blood sugars and ketones and, you know, do I need to lose weight? You can decide. You can right. use these metrics and parameters to find that the optimal approach. For you. Like you have, so, you have yeah. a list of foods for people who are um, who are trying to bulk up. You know, who don't have body yeah, fat yeah, yeah. and want to be nutrient dense. Yeah, and and using this approach of saying, well, insulin load helps people to grow. A low insulin load helps people to shrink. So if you want to grow, you can identify the nutrient dense foods, not just cheesecake that'll give you the whole of insulin that'll help you to grow in a healthy way. So yeah. all the bodybuilders are, you know, jamming in cheesecake and whey protein powder <laughs> to, to bulk up. There's healthier ways to do that. And I suppose I just wanted to prove that you could use this system to yeah. to reverse it, to find nutrient-dense foods that would help you grow in a healthy way. Also, you have information for vegans and vegetarians who are both insulin-sensitive and resistant. Yeah, yeah. More power to you. And um I think that's one big thing that stops people being interested in low carb who have that, you know, that they choose to be vegan and you know, more power to if you wanted to do that. It's probably not the most nutrient dense approach and it's probably going to be a little bit harder to, um, to normalize your blood sugars yeah. taking that approach. But, but you can do that. We have a few uh, people in our group who are vegan or vegetarian mm. uh, and want to know more about how to do that. We also have a few people who are thin but insulin resistant, mm. Uh, mm. which is very unfortunate. So that's that's an, also an interesting category that's uh, 
uh, people who are uh, tofu, you know, thin on the outside and fat on the inside. Mm. Uh, mm. They're just people who who have the same insulin resistance that Carl and I have, but their body fat isn't willing to to take them twenty years down the road before it make, before they become sick. So mm. uh, you know that's a even more complicated arrangement because they also yeah. need to put on they need to build some bulk. They need to. Uh, increase their lean mass they also need to increase mm. their body fat because that gives more Definitely. metabolic flexibility so and that brings us back to macadamias <laughs> well that's right <laughs> our friend mark miller eats macadamias by the handful like they're going out of style snacks on them all day long and uh he has a lot of lean body mass and barely no body fat and so, you know, there's a perfect example of somebody who wants to be in ketosis and yet doesn't want to waste away to nothing, you know, so he's got to have a lot of calories from fat if he's going to use that for fuel. Interesting. Does that make sense, Marty? Yeah, it does. It does. So we talked about glycemic index, glycemic load, the food insulin index. We talked about the satiety index, the glucose ketone index. And then there's another factor here called uh, insulin load. Tell us about insulin load. Yeah. yeah so um, when you look at the food insulin index, you find that the things that raise insulin are uh, carbohydrates minus fiber plus about half the protein. So um, I played around with that data, plotted some regressions through it, and found you could calculate the percentage of insulinogenic calories, which as I said, as I said before, we can then order the foods and find the most and least insulinogenic foods, but then we can also calculate the insulin load, which is like the glycemic load, but rather than just being a measure of how much will raise your blood sugar, it's, it's, it's a measure of how much insulin you'll need to secrete to cater for that food. So for someone like my wife, who's type 1 diabetic, having to calculate how much she's about to inject, it's immensely useful for someone who's wanting to manage uh, cancer and minimize the insulin it's it's really helpful and i think just um i think it's potentially might be controversial but more useful than carbohydrate counting but because it takes into account your fiber and your protein so a lot of people have had some really good results of just progressively trimming back the insulin load to the point that they start to lose weight now, do you find that this insulin load works? Uh, this it's a formula that does it work across all metabolic types? Yeah. So, uh, what I uh, I think what you need to do is basically decrease your insulin load of your food until your pancreas can keep up and maintain normal blood glucose levels. So, mm. and at that point, then maybe you start flirting, experimenting with more nutrient dense foods, maybe a little bit more protein, more broccoli, these sorts of things, and say, well. Can I maintain blood sugars at that point? If I can't, I retreat back to higher fat foods. Right. Um, but it's sort of finding that balance between higher fat foods and high nutrient density foods. And there's a little bit of a tension, a little bit of a dichotomy. But mm. as you said, different people are different and uh, there's different yeah. approaches to the optimal for different people. It reminds me of people who count um, carbs and net carbs, mm. right? Net carbs... Mm. Is that was a good start? I mean, we have carbohydrate total, and then we subtract yeah. the fiber, and we subtract, you know, sugar, alcohols, and things. Yeah. But now you're saying you have to add half of the protein to that. Yeah. So that's essentially what insulin load is. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and a, a ketogenic diet is a low, low carbohydrate, moderate protein diet, and that aligns perfectly. So it's just formularizing that. So is that? Uh, 0.56 of protein consistent across all proteins? 
Uh, as you can see from the graph there, it's a bit of a regression through that. So, but um, as a general rule, um, it's going to depend on your different amino acids that are in your different foods, sure. and it's 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 not perfect, and nothing is perfect. The metabolism is uh, you know jumps around, and it doesn't obey a linear system all the time. But it's uh, and proteins are chaotic as well. They yeah. uh, proteins are a chaotic structure that. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I, I certainly the more glucog glucogenic uh, uh, amino acids you've got, the 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 more insulin raising it will be. The more ketogenic they are, the the less mm. insulin raising it will be. And maybe that's the variation. But you know, the the proteins are uh, you know, hundreds to thousands of amino acids all stuck together. So mm. it's, yeah. a, it's a, as I say, chaotic. <laughs> it's a fascinating rabbit hole. <laughs> and what do you say to the vitamin poppers? What do you mean? Do you, should you have vitamins? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, there's just a, you know, there are people that say, you know, supplements, supplements, supplements. And my oh. first reaction is always, why not eat food? You know? Um, yeah, yeah. If, you, if your diet was any good, you wouldn't need supplements. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe treat it as an insurance, but yeah, your first point right. is going to be trying to get it from real food and doing everything you can. And, and the more I look at it, your mitochondria is fueled by good nutrition, and if you don't give it the nutrients it needs to to operate at a really high level, the high quality fuel to power your metabolic motor, the the, the more sluggish and you know, diabetic it's going to become. So do whatever you can to maximise nutrient density, which will maximise your mitochondrial function. So mitochondrial functions are particularly susceptible to B vitamin. Uh, access. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yep. B twelve, B six, and these are all fortified in in whole grains. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a good sign of what's in whole grains is that they have to jam a whole lot of vitamins into cereals right. and whole grains because they've removed them all. So this was one of my questions to uh, to Jason Fung and uh, Jimmy Moore. They're starting a new podcast in January, by the way, and I'm sending them this question. Fasting. Cause I, and mm -hmm. I just keep hammering on it because it's it's just an endless mystery to me, which is when you fast, how does your body get the vitamins and nutrients that it needs? And my first thought was, okay, I understand taking a multivitamin, but, you know, caveman didn't take vitamins when food was scarce. Obviously, the body has some coping mechanism for dealing with this. And maybe it's yeah. just the fact that it can tolerate a certain amount of time without food before yeah. it starts to get the nutrients from from it's your scavenges scavenges from your body yeah i mean your your own proteins as you break them down are going to have nutrients and vitamins in them just like eating uh, a normal food would be a meal. right and and jason says skin you know old skin mm. and dead skin and things like that get replaced but specifically the b vitamins the fat soluble vitamins is it possible mm. that these get stored in body fat and are called on when needed Mm, yeah, perhaps your liver is so nutrient dense with all those amazing foods that maybe they can pull them out. Yeah, I and maybe really that's why liver that, is such a nutrient dense food to begin with, because that's where all the vitamins are getting stored. Storage, still yeah. not eating it. <laughs> I'm still not eating it. <laughs> oh, come on, get some give me a vegetable. <laughs> just don't give me any liver. <laughs> Well, I mean, the point is, if you're fasting, you're you may be drawing yeah. out those nutrients from from yeah. body fat, and it should be a simple test to do to extract some body fat, do a biopsy, do a and biopsy do a biopsy and, uh, on yeah. it and see what what kinds oh. of vitamins are in there. Fascinating. I believe that all of the lipids are like cholesterol and and triglycerides and and fat soluble vitamins are are all in 
transited around via uh, lipoproteins and stored in fat cells. So I I suspect your your thought about this is probably true, but let's find it from let's find out from an expert. Yeah, I want I want somebody to do the science. (laughs) Yeah, do the science. All right, I'm getting out my scalpel right now. Marty, we could go on and on and on. This is great, but we are going to link to all of your great blog posts and put them in context with what we're talking about. And uh, man, just thank you so much for doing this work. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And with that, let's get some recipes. 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 Gingivitis. I can't get any deeper. But I can give you a recipe. I love recipes. Yeah. So this one is this one is going to be bacon soup. Now I've done a yakiniku pork belly soup before. Okay. And it's kind of like that, but it's a little bit different. So what I do is I start out with about 200 grams of yakiniku pork belly. Now this is on sale at Costco in Australia. Uh, I'm sure it's available at Costco in the States. What's the difference between regular pork belly and yakuniku pork belly? It's been sliced like bacon. So it's been sliced across the the pork belly yep. uh, into into rashes, but it's not cured. So it's like uncured bacon. Oh, okay. And are they thick? Are they like half an inch? Yeah. They're, well, they're probably a quarter of an inch thick, but you know, okay. they're nice and chunky. So, But you, could, you can, with a knife, you can get a pork belly and, and slice up your own. That's not a problem. Mm. But the whole thing is what you're going to do is you're going to put about 200 grams of this pork belly sliced in rashes into a smoking hot cast iron pan. Mm. And what that's going to do is it's going to render the fat out. And so you're going to end up with uh, maybe half an inch of fat in there Mm. with these. And and the meat is going to fry in that fat. And the collagen that's wrapped around the fat is going to turn crispy. So it's going to be like uh, crispy, crackly bacon. Nice. So now the whole point of cooking these, we're really going to use them as a garnish at the end. Okay. The whole point of doing this is to get the fat out of the meat. Render the fat. Render the fat out. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the bacon out once it's cooked, but before it goes black. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. I've made <laughs> ask me how I know. <laughs> yeah. Ask me how I know. So um, what you do is you take the meat out and you're left with about half an inch of bacon oil in the pan and it's hot and what you're going to do is you're going to take a couple of mushrooms dice them up very very small into quarter inch dice or half centimeter dice okay and toss that into the oil and what that's going to do is it's going to soak up all of that oil and it's going to it's going to almost crisp up the mushrooms nice and on top of that i grate a little bit of garlic and a little bit of ginger so i'm that's the flavor i'm going for Pork, mushroom, ginger, garlic combination. Yeah, nice. Now, once the mushrooms have gotten crispy, what I'm going to do is I'm going to toss into that about three cups of ham bone stock. Oh, I love it. And, yeah, so that's that's the basis of the soup. Now, in another pot on the side, I'm going to butter poach some cauliflower. Oh. And what I did today was I'd gotten to the end of my cauliflower and I had this nub in the middle. And I thought, what I might do is try slicing that with a mandolin into thin slices Mm. and butter poach those as well. Nice. So so now when you're plating up, you take the soup into a bowl and you squish all of the mushrooms into a line down the middle so that you can lay the bacon and the cauliflower on top of that. And then... I alternate bacon, 
a slice of that uh, cauliflower nub and that more bacon, more cauliflower, mm-hmm. and then on the side I put these florets of cauliflower that have been poached in butter. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and on top of this I put uh, a couple of uh, fried asparagus spears just for garnish and to have something green on. I find that if I have something green on, uh, it gets a higher wife acceptance factor. <laughs> <laughs> and neighbor acceptance factor. And too, neighbor yeah, acceptance, people, exactly. The uninitiated, oh, it's green, it's healthy. Yeah, it's got to be healthy, yeah. Got to be healthy. So so that's my recipe, bacon soup. It'll be on our 2keto uh, blog, blog.2keto.com um, sometime tonight. So what have you got, Carl? All right. My recipe is very simple. And it came to me while I was talking to Marty. Uh, on Facebook about nutrient density and looking at the list of foods that are high on that list, sardines yeah. is there. Right. And of course, oily fish, we all know, you know, omega-3s and yep. the whole nine yards about oily fish and we don't get as much oily fish as we need. And sardines, I've always loved them. Mm. Takes me back to when I was a kid and my parents would have, you know, people over maybe, or maybe they would just, you know, have my grandmother over and she'd have a little glass of sherry and some cheese and sardines on crackers with always with a squirt of lemon juice mm. and the sardines right out of the can. And I loved them as a kid. They were salty, the salty, salted sardines well, in the my, can with the lemon juice on top. Well, mm. my mother got the ones with no salt, but you know. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Carl. Yeah, you know. I'm sorry for your upbringing. Well, it is what it is. So I, I wanted to recreate that. So I took cheese crisps, which are a staple in my house, mm. and put a few sardines out of the can. And, and, and the sardines I got were King Oscar Mediterranean-style sardines and nice, zero carbs, yeah. have the skin, yeah. have the bones, so you get all of that nutrition in there. Delicious. Yeah. And I take those and, yes, a little salt, some coarse salt on that. Of course. And lemon juice, and that's it. And let me tell you something. You don't need many of those to get satisfied. Mm, that yeah. sounds delicious. Isn't that good? Absolutely delicious, yeah. It's not just to- Okay, I, mean, I, need, some, I need some sardines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, try that out. And uh, uh, yeah. this has sort of be, uh, become a, a new fascination for me. Nice. And next week, I'm going to have a recipe that's closer to yours, but what it is is going to blow you away. So uh, okay. until next week, my friend. I'm on tender hooks. <laughs> I'm on tender hooks. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the show. Of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute what we've said here, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on our website. And if you can follow us on Twitter at twoketodudes or on Instagram at Two Keto Dudes. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you want to join our Facebook community, it's fb.twoketo.com. And by the way, we just hit a thousand Instagram followers. Nice. And we're going to have a contest to do a giveaway and uh, more details on that next week. And we had a giveaway with when we hit a thousand with Facebook as well. So that's, that's right. awesome. Yeah. And now we're at 10,000. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how that happens. Well, my friend, keep calm and keto on. Keep calm and keto on, Carl. And we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. Dudes.